It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am honored to be joined today by Ann Canfield. Hi, Ann. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. How is life in Connecticut? Well, I'm happy to report that the spring weather is finally coming our way, and (laughs) life is looking up as the world is opening up. Yes. Isn't that the truth? It is so refreshing. I was at a wedding this weekend and was able to like talk to people and hang out. And it was, it was like a reminder of life before. Exactly. We're really looking forward to getting outside and getting some hiking in and visiting with friends. Yes, definitely. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Anne, and then I'm going to let her tell some of her own story as we as we go along here. Anne has been coaching in several business settings for over 20 years, helping grow employees and teams to be the best they can be at work. Anne has a master's degree in behavioral analysis and therapy and is a certified life coach with ICF. Anne has been working with staff at all levels to include, including several industries, marketing, sales, customer service, accounting, and manufacturing. And Superpower is developing an effective customized training program and has taught at Northwestern Community College and has created curriculum and taught the following courses online, interviewing skills, public speaking, and confidence building strategies. Anne is an active member of Toastmasters, Women in Manufacturing, and International Coaching Federation. Her most recent projects include developing webinar and master classes for effective communication skills and relationship building in the workplace. She's also partnered with USA Parent to Parent to assist with their training programs. Well, now I'm intimidated. You have a degree in, in, and uh, information and in, in interviewing skills, so... So what do I do with that? (laughs) Don't be intimidated. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, um, let's just dive right in here and um, tell us a little bit about your growing up. I know you shared your bio with me, but I kind of just wanted to let you tell your story and and in your own words, uh, let us know a little bit about Anne. Sure. I've actually had a, a lot of turmoil in my childhood. However, I will say that my childhood was a lot like a ride at Disneyland. Disneyland. Yes. And you get in line and you're all excited, but you're scared to death. And you're like, it's scary, but it's going to be thrilling. And you get through the ride and you're scared, but you're excited. But at the end of the ride, you've got this amazing story to tell of all these emotions. Oh, that's that's a great simile. Great example of what my childhood was like, but there's one story that stands out. And that is that at a very young age, I had a parakeet chipper that was in a cage and he had learned to open the door of his cage. And he flew out of my room when I opened the door after school. And I'm thinking, I can't believe this bird flew away. And I had a very hard time accepting and dealing with my childhood, but my mom would only let me have one pet. And that was this bird. Oh, And I was darned if this bird 
was not going to come back. And I went outside and I said, nope, the bird's going to come back. And my my mother and my sister were like, the bird's gone. It's a parakeet. The bird is gone. I go, nope, I am going to sit here and I am going to pray. And this (laughs) bird is coming back. I don't know how. Sure enough, 30 minutes later, the woman that lived behind us peeked over the fence and said, did you just lose a parakeet? Because a parakeet just flew in my door. And I go, praise God. Yes, I did. (laughs) And I will tell you, I have had more faith since that moment because it literally was a moment in my life where I realized the power of prayer and the power of belief. Right. (laughs) How old were you? I was literally 10 years old. Oh, Cool. So tell me a little bit about, um, you said you had a kind of a tumultuous childhood, but you also, you ended up in some foster care situations. So tell me about what led up to that. So my mother actually was an alcoholic, but she also had bipolar. And so my sister and I kind of got together and said, oh, you know, maybe this isn't the best environment. And so I ended up in foster home. And what was interesting is the first time I went, they actually said, we have no case. There's no problem with you because I lived in a very middle-class neighborhood, Uh in a very nice house, and they didn't understand what the problem was. And I'm like, I'm telling you, this is not a good environment. Nope, sending you back. So what really upsets an alcoholic is when you take their child away and then you give them back. Okay. So I went back home lived for a few more years, had some issues, and once again, ended up in foster care again. And the second time around, I was like, I cannot go back and was in foster care. And um, gratefully, by the grace of God, my friend's mother with five children, a single mother, ended up taking me in. Wow. Ended up taking me in. And it was just an amazing, amazing thing just wonderful. So tell me a little bit about your foster families. I was in a foster home for a while and then, and then a friend's family took me in and that was, that was a good experience, but tell me a little bit about your foster experience. Sure. The first one that I went to was actually a family. It was a couple that had all girls and it was very, um, structure. They literally had structure. And the biggest memory that I have is them making me eat hot dog and baked beans. And in my Ah. house, I didn't want to eat some, but I didn't have to eat. They're like, nope, you'll sit here all day and you'll eat these beans. And it was just very, very, you know, they had people that would just come and go. And because of my situation, I wasn't going to school or anything. I literally would just hang out at this house all day. And we had to go do newspapers, pack newspapers on the weekend. My second time around, I was a little bit older and I was a teenager and I was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and the state had actually taken over a string of almost apartments. And they literally had a state worker that would come in and they would be on 24, you know, eight hour shifts. And you just have like a state worker hanging out in this house where all these girls would live. And oh, wow. Very, very intimidating. And the girls that were there, these were very tough girls from the streets that I was with, but, you know, like I said, I got through it and, uh, and it was, it was a hard time, especially the second time around, because I had no clue who was going to take me, what was going to happen. And gratefully, 
So did you ever feel like you had jumped from the frying pan into the fire, like leaving your home and then going to this unstructured place where there's all these Mm -hmm. kids and not very much adult supervision? It was very scary both times because you have, I think the biggest thing about it was that because of my home environment, there was no rules. There was no discipline. There wasn't a lot. It was just a free for all at home. Then you get to this foster. I'm like, oh no, you're going to eat that. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And it was very like controlling, but also the fact of not knowing what was going to happen next. Okay. And that was the part that was so difficult because nobody, I didn't know who was going to claim me and where I was going to end up. Yeah. That was the part that was so scary, but you know, it's interesting because Right now, when I look at it, I think to myself, the second time around, for some reason, there was such a calmness of thinking, I have faith this is going to work out. Like, it was like my parakeet. Like, I'm like, I just know it's going to be okay. But not knowing how, but just having a feeling it's it's going to it's gonna work. And it did. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I was a teenager when I was in the foster care system for just a, just a short time. And you know, even in the midst of the chaos, I always had this, uh, this God instinct that I was, that I was going to be okay, even though it was felt desperate and, and things were, things were chaotic, but I was, I was blessed with a great foster home and, and, uh, had, had a great family, but it, it was pretty, pretty, um, intimidating. Like you say, to not know what's happening next. Exactly. For a, for a kid, that's pretty scary. Yeah. And I have to say the biggest thing about it is I had guardian at Lightum and my advocate, I will forever be grateful because she was just so amazing and so helpful because when you're in there for me, anyway, I couldn't communicate with anybody. I wasn't allowed to use the phone. I wasn't allowed to make phone calls. This is back way back in the eighties. Like you were like uh, completely not communicating with the outside right. world. And she was the person who just came over. What do you need? How can I help you? And just really kind of making you feel like it's it's going to be okay. She was a lifeline then. Oh, a complete lifeline. And just as calm and as caring as they come. And I remember when Francine, my foster mom, came to pick me up and bring me home. I'll never forget, like the car broke down. And I remember thinking, I will take this any day of the week. I am fine. Yeah. Like after what I've just been through, the whole world can fall around us as long as I'm out here with you and with somebody who loves and cares for me. I am all good. Like I felt like I'm with family. It's going to be okay. Yeah, that's that's great. So tell me what it's like being raised uh, by an alcoholic parent with bipolar. What makes that chaotic? It, I mean, it sounds chaotic, but tell me some of the content of that. Some of the content for that was the fact of being independent and learning how to be self-reliant. And I think that was the biggest part of it. As much as it might have been a horrible situation, I will tell you, I loved both of my parents. I would not change my DNA with anybody in the world because my parents were incredibly creative and incredibly entrepreneur, and they really wanted to just live life on their terms. And for some reason, even at a young age, I could appreciate that. Like I could appreciate that they were doing the best that they could with what they had. Because as bad as it might've been, their 
their situation, their upbringing, their experience and who they were made them the people even mm-hmm. that I got to enjoy, even in the good and the bad. I'll give you an example. My mom, oh, she had a business for selling gold and silver. And she woke up one day and she said, I got it. Totally was like going up the mania. I am going to sell high host silver t-shirts. This is going to be great from the Lone Ranger, if you remember uh-huh. the Lone Rangers. Yeah. She's like, we're going to get shirts and I'm going to do high host silver. Now, this is the 80s. This is not today. You can't just go on the internet and order stuff. Okay. She contacted Hollywood. And within three days, the Hollywood poster of the Lone Ranger was in our living room. Oh, my goodness. Within two weeks, that woman had ordered 500 shirts of high ho silver T-shirts for her company to get out and to hand in. Like, it just, to me. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That somebody could be that quick and ingenious and creative and determined to do something and to get it done. That type of thing was amazing. I mean, I just, like I said, there might've been some bad parts and there was definitely some very down, horrible things that happened. But on the other hand, there were lessons and experiences that I had that most kids would never have had in their day. Yeah. So she had the, she had the mania and the high highs. Did she have the low lows too? Absolutely. She was in bed for three or four months at a time. And you literally were fending for yourself, you know, and I had a stepfather that would come by, he would do the grocery shopping, but he worked at night. So I would just take care of myself and do whatever I needed to do, you know, not knowing what was going to happen the next day. And being in the house, because again, when you're not being supervised, you're kind of just on your own. And you don't leave the house as much you don't bring friends over. You right out as much. It's taught me an appreciation that as an adult, I live life to the fullest every day because yeah. as a child, I didn't have that freedom and that exercise to be able to realize that I have a choice because when I was a child growing up, I didn't have that choice mm-hmm. and that I was robbed of those, those um, opportunities. Well, thank you for, thank you for answering my next question, which is where do you find passion for life? And that's part of your answer, right? That's right. I do. I find passion for life because number one, that I've had faith in God from the beginning. Like I just know it's in my bones. Everything is going to work out. And secondly, the best is yet to come. I haven't even got a little plaque. You do. It says the best is yet to come. So it's one of those things that you have to believe it's going to be good. You know, it's going to be good. So where did your faith come from? Were you raised in the church or did your, did your parents infuse that into you? Where did it come from? My mother actually always used to have on TV evangelist and she used to have on Robert Schuller. If you okay. remember Robert yes. Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, Crystal Cathedral, God, God loves you. And so do I, right? Uh-huh. That was what was always on the TV. And I would wake up to that on Sunday morning. So my mom definitely had this, this ability and this faith. And I had my first communion in the church and she just kind of had this. It was more about this relationship with God that you have. And like I said, the parakeet story, when that happened, I was just like, I am totally in for life because I cannot fathom that that parakeet came back and it just like was a sign that it's going to be okay. Right. Really solidified your faith through a little bird. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have a parakeet story too, but my parakeet hung himself from the towel in his cage. So my parakeet story is not like your parakeet story. (laughs) So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, You talk about epilepsy and how that has been a part of your life since you and your husband were dating. That is correct. Actually, Um, we met at the, we worked at the same resort. And he's very, very handsome. My husband was incredibly, incredibly a beautiful specimen for a 24-year-old man. Nice. Walking around on the campus. We worked at the Scottsdale Plaza Resort. And I'm like, I have to find out the story with this guy. Now, he rode his bike to work every day. And I thought he was an environmentalist. Because I was (laughs) like, that guy is so cool that he rides his bike to work every day. Well, come to find out. He finally comes over. He asks me out. I give him my number. Call me. We'll go out. He says, well, you know, I don't have a car. Can you come pick me up? And I thought, no problem. He's an environmentalist. I'm sure he's an environmentalist. <laughs> we get on our date. We're at the restaurant. We're eating. And he goes, uh, by the way, I have epilepsy. And the word did not even leave his mouth. And he had a seizure. And he doesn't have grand mal seizures. He has what they call petit mal. So he kind of spaced out and he looked distressed and I did not really know him. The waitress came by and was like, sir, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't really, I don't know him. I don't just, (laughs) and I literally like pretended that I was going to like leave. But, um, and he came back and he goes, I'm sorry. He goes, I'm sorry. That was a seizure. I go, wait, 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 that's a seizure. That's nothing. Give me a nice tantrum at the end of the day and I'll show you some activity. (laughs) So I figured, you know, what's this guy's story? So we got back in the car and he just opened up to me and told me about surgeries and his family. And he was so open about his whole life and how he literally lived in Connecticut. His mom had passed away. He had had surgery. It didn't work. He took his bike and he flew from Connecticut to Arizona to live with a friend and take a job with nothing. And I just thought, this is the kind that I want to be with. And I'll never forget telling my family, I've met a guy, I've met this beautiful love of my life. And they're like, he's got epilepsy. He's got seizures. Like, do you really want that? And I said, if you think about it, it's really a matter of timing. Because what if I fell in love with the richest, most handsome man in the world. And then two weeks after we get married, he's in an accident and he has seizures. Would you tell me to divorce him and leave him? Is that what you would do? Like, what is the difference between before and after? And I remember asking, you know, after our first date, looking up and go, God, did I forget to mention no brain disorders? (laughs) All I heard in my head is God saying, if you think you're perfect, you need to look again because you are not perfect. And if seizures is the worst thing this man has, I think you're going to be okay in life. Yeah. And it really has been a wonderful, wonderful experience because I literally have a slumber party buddy every night for the rest of my life. Nice. So how, how often does he seize? He actually has been seizure free for 250 days. Oh, really? Wow. However, however, 
because of the amount of brain damage that he's had and because of the medication that he's on, he only remembers about a week or two weeks at a time. Okay. And his cognitive is fading. So him understanding words that you say or being able to find a word of what he wants to say or even sometimes even following conversations has become increasingly difficult because many people think, oh, well, they have a cure for epilepsy, right? Like people don't have seizures as much. And I think that the sad part about it is I fought and we fought for a long time against the medications and the medications and the medications because we've tried medications and they suck out your ability to remember and to think Mm -hmm. clearly. But unfortunately, it came to a part where we had to just keep increasing the drugs and changing the drugs because he was having 14 seizures in 10 days. Oh, wow. And we ended up changing them and they said it's stress. He can't have any stress. So we reduced the stress. I'm actually working partly from home now. And, uh, and he's actually hasn't had seizures, but unfortunately the medication to stop the seizures give you a whole new set of issues that you have to deal with. Right. Is the trade-off worth it? Um, I, I can't even, I, I want to say on some days I want to say yes. And some days I want to say no, it just kind of, it, it's a hard call to make. Yeah. It really is because like I said, he, we've, it's, it's hard. It's hard no matter which way you look at it. And people think, oh, it's epilepsy. They don't have seizures anymore. They must be fine. And from where I sit, I've seen both sides of it. And it's not, it's a very complicated disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not an easy thing. And unfortunately the medication, you know, blessing and a curse in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So how have you dealt with the stress of kind of the changing landscape of your family? Um, oh, well, I'll tell you one thing. What's really fascinating is when you live with somebody, like you're living 51st dates, if you've ever seen that movie. Yes. What's really phenomenal is he teaches me every day to live in the moment, mm. number one. And number two, we literally live like we're on vacation because he is literally living like he's on vacation because he doesn't have any stress. We minimally, we take care of things as much as we can, but we have to keep the stress low in our household. So it's literally allowed us to become minimalist and to be able to just enjoy every day and to find ways to automate and to decrease any type of um, issues that we might have, you know? That's, That's terrific. Do you have children? We do. We have one teenage son who is 18 years old who is graduating high school this year and going to college. Oh, fun. So how has he dealt with, with the changes in his dad? He actually, he, because he's a teenager, he isn't around as much because he's working, he's going to school, he's been in different shows. But I think for him, I've always said that as much as I don't want any child to have any adversity, I think that adversity also helps again shapes your experience and shapes you to have empathy for other people and helps you kind of learn from another without you having to experience it yourself. Right. You know, and because he's been with his father and this issue is kind of the memory issue is 
you know, been always there. It just seems to be worsening as my husband's aging. It really is something that he's just kind of always lived with. Grown up with. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, educate me. Epilepsy is a brain disorder. Yes. Yes. Okay. And there's two different types. There's one type that, as you know, there's grand mal seizures. Right. You completely can fall um, that are a lot more traumatic or there's petit mal, which is what he has, which literally he just kind of spaces out, kind of makes some noises, but he's still not conscious but it isn't necessarily as traumatic. Is that the same as like a drop seizure? A drop seizure would be more of like a grand mal. Okay. Like he doesn't, he does not fall by any means. Okay. He, fall. he just spaces out and usually makes a lot of noise. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for the information. So your work as a, um, as a coach, how did you get into that? Because I've actually been doing it in the workplace for so long, it was something for me to kind of look to transition to to be able to do it now in the private sector and for a larger audience. Because um, being a behavior analyst at work, developing training programs, motivating others, strategic planning, but my other part is that I can relate to what it's like to be a long-term caregiver. And that to me is a really special place to be because I know what that journey is like and anything that I can do to help another person to help themselves through that journey, I would love to be able to do that because I do, I I can relate and I understand that I've got empathy from that personal experience. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. What is, what is the International Coaching Federation? It's the Coaching Federation for Life Coaches. Okay. it's the, it's basically the certification. What is the process to becoming a life coach? I don't even know. I've never asked that. You can actually go and get training for uh, 40 hours for, to get your life coach certification. And you go through training of how to be a life coach. And then you have to actually uh, continue by getting your hours put in. So you actually have to have those practical hours. Okay. So you have to have a hundred hours. Then they also have an exam that you have to go through as well to be okay. able to. And then you have levels of life coaching that you can be in. If there's so. one favorite piece of life coaching for you, what would that be? I personally, right now, the, the element and the market that I'm looking at is I actually look at doing webinars for companies or for teams and staff. And then I like to do that individual life coaching afterwards, because I know a lot of us have gone to like a learning course or even a training, but what happens when we get back two or three weeks later, right? We kind of forget it. We might use it. We might not. But the fact of saying, okay, well, let's have coaching afterwards to be able to apply it and to be able to practice it in that individual situation. So that's something I'm looking to, to really expand that market. And then again, with caregivers. So it really, it really is kind of a funnel for you of, you know, that initial, that initial um, download of information and then people decide what they're going to do with it and you help them apply that then. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because we recognize that everybody's situation is different yes. and we recognize that everybody's got different scenarios. And so we want to be able to speak to those different scenarios on that one-on-one, but sometimes you're like, where do I start? I don't know what to do. Well, that's where that original, that 
original webinar or that original you know, topic comes from to be able to say, okay, here's some general information. Now let's talk about how do we apply it to you? Yes. So what do you think the most essential piece of information you can give caregivers is? I think the most essential piece of information is to understand that it's a journey. And my best analogy is the Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. You know, those in the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy has these red shoes. And those shoes were not going to bring her home until she went through the journey. And Mm -hmm. as much as we don't want to have to go through the journey, we all have an individual journey that we're on. And the red shoes are not going to work. And even when we have a friend and we're working with somebody and we're trying to help them, we have to realize we can't help them as much as we can help them to help themselves. Yes. It goes back to that idea of asking questions and asking open-ended questions and letting them discover what their path is and what issues they have, what the priorities are, and helping them to answer those for themselves because we have to go through it. Unfortunately, it's not something we can just pull on YouTube. Oh, there's the answer. If I just do this, I'm going to have peace. Right. (laughs) It just just isn't that way. (laughs) If only it was that easy, Anne. I know I'm looking to be somebody's scarecrow, lion, or tin man for them to be Dorothy and be like, I will help you on your journey because guess what? I want your red shoes to work. I do. I want your red shoes to work, but unfortunately we have to go through the journey first. Well, what a, what a cool gift that is though, to be able to walk alongside people, you know, the, the Jesuits have a concept of God that is a withness and that, that Christ walks with us in our journeys and that he walks with us through the valleys and and through our triumphs. And I, I understand that God, I understand the God who's with me. And so I think to accompany people on their own journey is such a rich gift. It is. And that's, and I think the biggest part about that is learning that from my own journey with my husband. You know, I can't take away his pain. I can't help his memory. There's a lot of things I can't do for him, but that's not my job. My job is to help him and meet him where he is on his own journey. And I'll tell you by having that perspective, I personally, sometimes I learn more from him then he learns from me. Yes. You know, he always thinks, oh, you're the one who holds the household. You do everything for us. And I'm like, no, see, you are my cheerleader. You sometimes are my North star because you add value to my life. Right. And you teach me things that nobody else on this earth can teach me. Yeah. You know, such as we'll do in the moment. I love that it's a matter of perspective. Um, your perspective is in a, in a positive, faith-filled way rather than a I'm I'm the victim of my circumstances way. It's it's flipping that upside down and saying this is this has got good in it. Right. And I think that's I think that's beautiful. So in your in your bio, you mentioned parent to parent. I'm curious, what is parent to parent USA? Parent to Parent is actually a program where they have trained support parents that help other parents that have children with disabilities. Okay. And it's an amazing organization. And I am just absolutely thrilled 
to be working with them. Again, going back to the idea of saying, okay, well, how do we work with parents? How do we create these trained support parents to help other parents? You know, and how do we give them support? Because as you can imagine, that's a very trying role. Absolutely. I'll help, I'll help, I'll help a parent. But again, it's like, how do we help you to help them? Yeah. How did you get involved with that? I actually, there's an amazing organization called Catch a Fire. And it's a volunteer organization that they look for volunteers. So they match up organizations, nonprofits that are looking for help, along with volunteers that are looking to help somebody. So it's called Catch a Fire. And that's how I found them. And they were looking for somebody with their training. So that's great. And you just, you just fit right into their puzzle pieces there. I did. I did. I'm very, I just, they're just a wonderful, wonderful organization. So, you know, when I was reading back on my notes, uh, a phrase came into mind that uh, I, I wanted to attribute to this interview, and it is that strong women, may we create them, may we be them. And I wondered what strong women in your life contributed to where you are now. Oh, they are amazing, amazing women. I've actually got two. First of them was my um, my friend's mother, Francine, who had five children, single mom who took me in, in my moment of need. And this woman is amazing. She actually had all of the children, self-included. We had to get up at 530 in the morning every day during the week. And we had to have a prayer meeting. Mm. And we would read a verse from the Bible. We would all do our individual prayers. And then we would kneel in front and she would say a prayer over us. But she also had a very disciplined household, which I love that structure, that it was filled with love for every one of her children. And at seven, eight o'clock at night, every night, she would go into her room and she would close the door and she would spend time with God and pray. Mm. That really stuck with me because her whole motto was, you need to find the relationship with God. It's important that you're on that journey with God every day of your life. It's things I can't do for you. You have to do them for yourself. And that powerful. And then another woman of my friend, Barbara, another amazing woman who set the example for my life. And both of these women, it wasn't necessarily all these things and words of wisdom but it was the way that they lived and it was the strength that they lived in the lives that they had. And that to me was just, it, I was in awe of that because I didn't get that from my mother growing up. And I saw that in these women and Barbara, my friend, Barbara, I still speak to her regularly. And if it was not for her influence every day of my life, I would not be the amazing wife and mother that I am today because she really shaped my life and she kind of showed me how to do it, you know, and just in her example. Well, I think we all need people like that, don't we? That kind of pave the way for us. And and like you said, both those women set an example for you. How powerful is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think the most um, important message is that we can communicate to future generations of women? I think the message for future generations of women is, number one, we have to love ourselves first. And I know it might sound corny, and I know that people say it, 
But do we really look at ourselves in the mirror and do we really say, you know what, I love who I am? Because the question is, what is self-love? Self-love is saying, you know what, I forgive myself for any past transgression I've ever had. I love myself for where I am today and I accept myself for where I am today. And it's okay because we beat ourselves up. Oh, I didn't do that. Oh, this didn't work out well. And there's multiple examples in the Bible. When you look at the Bible, the people that were chosen, mm-hmm. these were not phenomenal, great people. These weren't the stellars of the community. No, they, they were, were human to the core. They were human to the core and they were chosen. And guess what? If God chooses them, he can choose you too. But here's the deal. It's got to start with you. And the yep. biggest thing is, is to be able to look yourself in the mirror and go, I'm pretty amazing to me. I love myself because we're going to be with ourselves forever. So mm-hmm. you might as well just say, you know what? Good, bad, or indifferent. I love myself and I'm pretty awesome. Yeah. Because confidence is knowing that you're worthy without having to be told by somebody else. Oh, I like that. And it means, are we actually telling ourselves that we are worthy for ourselves? No matter what I do today, no matter what happens, it's that unconditional love. When you see a friend and that friend is like, oh my gosh, you're here. I love you. I'm so excited to see you. When you think about that interaction, we need to be doing that to ourselves. Mm. We need to be looking at ourselves and be like, I am so excited to be me today. Because yeah. I'm pretty awesome. That's unconditional love. Well, I think the I I think the effort to befriend ourselves is kind of counterintuitive to our culture because our culture is so into outside stimulus. How many likes do you have? How mm-hmm. many people approve of what you are or what you do or how much attention are you yeah. getting or how do you look? Are the external influences mm-hmm. can really crowd out that that befriending of ourselves, don't you think? That's 100% right. And that's the part where you need to look and have that faith and that confidence in yourself to say, it doesn't matter because guess what? I matter to me. And Mm -hmm. my opinion of myself is the most important one. I shouldn't have to be told by anybody. Your opinion of me, anybody else's opinion of me does not change the value that I have for myself. Very and when good. We learn that and we accept that. It, it allows us to be able to be more giving to others, right? Because absolutely we have it to give. Absolutely. Well, I feel like I could talk to you all afternoon, but I just have one one follow, final question for you, and it's: um, What do you most want people to know about your life? I think the biggest thing I want people to know is that it's a hard road. But I know for a fact that each of us have this inner strength and this inner peace and all of these wonderful abilities and gifts that are just dying to be used. And again, hoping that for my example is that if I can do it, anybody else can do it. I am no more special than anybody else because people look, they're like, how can you have so much joy? Why are you optimistic? And I'm like, Because I have my experiences, but guess what? Your story, I guarantee you, your story's got all kinds of stuff. And people like, oh, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to talk about it. It's like, take that story and share it and own it and appreciate it for what it is because it's made you the wonderful person that you are. Yes, I love that. 
Having adversity is not bad. Having adversity has made you stronger and has made you better. They had this thing on Facebook a while ago and they had the 10 people stand up, you know, the whole line of people. And uh-huh. they said, if you've had a meal today, step forward. If you actually have $10 in the bank, step forward. And they said, oh, these are the people that are going to get ahead in life, right? Because they've done better. You know, they have advantage. Right. And I want to reverse that. And I want to tell you, I, I think it should be the opposite. I'd like somebody to say, you know what? Do you know what it's like to have a hard time and not know what's going to happen in the morning? Step forward. Do you know what it's like to be in a foster home? Step forward. Do you know what it's like about your neck? Guess what? These are the people that have had adversity. These are the people that are strong. These are the people that didn't have it healthy and wealthy. But guess what? They've made it through and their story is incredibly valuable. Yes. To themselves and to other people. Absolutely. Well, Anne, thank you so much for sharing your joy and your optimism and your confidence. I just appreciate your words very deeply. And um, how do people get a hold of you and find out more about what you do? I actually, um, I actually have a website for strengthtodaylc.com. Or you can reach me at my email address, Ann, A-N-N-C, at strengthtodaylc.com. Great. Well, we will post that in our show notes. And again, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, JillReilly.author, and on Twitter, JillReillyAuthor. Email Jill at JillReilly.org.